Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of the New Books Network. Uh, I am your host, Lee Pierce, she, hers pronouns, from the State University of New York at Geneseo, where I am a professor of rhetoric and communication. And I am very excited today to have with me Dr. Brad Vivian, who will go by Brad, uh, he, his pronouns, from Penn State University, speaking on his new book, Commonplace Witnessing. Brad, are you there? I am. Well, it's awesome to have you on. I am so stoked about this book, especially because I am sort of also, I don't identify as a public memory scholar per se, but I think other people would put me in that in that link. So it's really cool to see all the work that's being done. Do you want to say hello to everybody and just give a brief intro? Sure. Um, hello, and thanks for having me on. It's uh, super fun to do this and uh, a real contribution that you're offering. Uh, so I am a professor of communication arts and sciences at Pennsylvania State University. And within communication arts and sciences, one of my specialties is, as you said, study of public memory. And uh, I'm also currently director of the Center for Democratic Deliberation. So that's me. That's cool. I usually try to jump right to the book, but I have to ask, what is the Center for Democratic Deliberation? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) So the CDD for short is... Uh, it's a research center. It's based in the humanities in Penn State, and we're housed within the McCourtney Institute for Democracy. And there's two research centers in it. So one covers uh, more straightforward political science, and we cover the humanities contribution. And what we try to do is uh, analyze the ways in which people are deliberating, whether in healthy or unhealthy ways for purposes of democracy. And try and recommend better ways to do it, improve the quality of civic discourse. And actually, one of the topics that keeps coming up, there's a connection, is, um, you know, recent controversies over public memory, historical nostalgia, public memorials, things like that. So that's interesting. So I hadn't thought about that. But, you you know, because so for those of you at home who are not rhetoricians, um, we all, you know, I always think about the, the distinction between genres. And so when you think about deliberation, and like what we think of as as public memory and the epideictic, you think of them as separate. But of course, part of what doing work with deliberate public deliberation means is, is teaching people or thinking about practices of commemoration. That's right. And well, in a lot of ways, if you're confronted as a democratic community with some problem in the present, um, it's of course, there's no mathematical solution to questions about politics or society or morality. So a lot of times what people do is they reach back to the past, see what's been done before, um, and try to remember collectively how people worked out various problems. So there's a sense in which uh, always maintaining a sense of historical wisdom is important to being part of a democratic community that's trying to deliberate over what to do now. Yeah, and that's one of the things I really enjoyed about your book is that the scope of historical not only sort of like theorizing about witnessing, but also just acts of witnessing. And this, so for just as a quick uh, note to listeners, this book pretty much spans. I mean, we start with texts as early as the late 
1800s with Booker T. Washington, and we move up right into the present day with the 9-11 memorial. So you're looking at witnessing across an incredibly dramatic scope. And it's, it really drives the point home that you're trying to make in the book about how witnessing sort of op, op, occupies this liminal space between this transparent truth of of history and violence and victim and victimhood, and then also this very superficial and plastic set of tropes that really someone could kind of pick up and just convincingly deploy. And how would one ever know the difference? Yeah, thanks. And yeah, that's a good um, synopsis of a lot of the thrust of what I was trying to do. I'd genuinely be interested in what um, historians or whatnot might think of some of the methods in play here. I do try and capture a a broad sense of history for the um, in the context that she stated, because witnessing, I think, over the course of the 20th century becomes more and more a type of speech act that people recognize and try to participate in. Um, so there's a an effort here to tell a story about how, um, as you referenced in Booker T. Washington's time, um, there were certain traditions of witnessing that allowed particular sorts of persons to speak, but not others. And we've gotten to a time and place in late 20th century, uh, I think Western society in particular, and this is sort of the core argument of the book, um, where people are encouraged almost as a civic right to think about themselves as witnesses. That uh, you watch Schindler's List in middle school, which they do. Uh, you listen to a speech by Elie Wiesel on the nightly news or something of that nature. And I think a lot of the rhetorical point of those messages is to say you should adopt this lesson from history and speak about it or sort of testify to it yourself, even if you're kind of a quote-unquote ordinary citizen. Um, you know, historically, that wasn't always the case. Um, I think over the past century or two, more and more people have been encouraged to think of themselves as engaging in acts of witnessing um, by a particular definition. And not only engage in acts as a witness, which I, I agree, but also there's this sort of almost like ear, and of course this is like how 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 witnessing becomes a mode of circulating certain norms of power is that you're constrained on both sides, right? Because I'm encouraged to act as a witness to 9-11 or, or whatever sort of memorial mode I'm in, but also I'm not ever really like the true witness because the true witness I always have to pay deference to because they're somewhere else. That's right. It's a it's a definitional matter, which is I try and clear a little ground early on um, to say that, you know, it depends how you talk about witnessing. Um, there are traditions of religious witnessing that go back a long ways in Christian history. There's even senses of witnessing legal uh, as well as ethical in the classical period. And I'm trying to uh, hone in on something very specific, I think, to that begins in like 20th century Western culture, uh, which is what you described, this idea that because you've heard a particular story, then you can adopt it in turn, in turn even though you're not a survivor of historical tragedy or, or atrocity, you might not have a direct lived connection to it. But there's, there's something that seems to happen where, apropos of the theme of the book, witnessing becomes more commonplace uh, around the turn of the century. This idea that we're watching things on television, we're sharing stories in social media all the time. And um, however it happens, when people tend to just comment on the past, even in small parts of ordinary communities, a lot of these tropes of even, say, witnessing from Holocaust memory get picked up and used to describe 
any old event. Um, so witnessing becomes commonplace in that regard. And in sort of one of the paradoxes I'm trying to figure out what kind of social work is being done when people can imagine themselves speaking like witnesses and do speak about historical events as witnesses, but they're actually not literal witnesses to events, uh, if you catch the distinction there. And I think you do a really good job because obviously one of the things that gets tricky here is when you start talking about how certain practices of witnessing that we're doing now may or may not line up historically with other practices of witnessing. And that doesn't necessarily mean that one is more true or more false, but rather that we need to attend to how witnessing is normalized as an act of public discourse, right? So you're not and I think this is always important because people always want to say, well, like, were they really a witness or are, do they, is that real? Did they really see what they saw? But that's not really the question that you want to ask. And I think the book does a great job of not only laying out different acts of witnessing, but your overall kind of point is that, you know, whether or not we want to believe the witness or the witness is true or the witness is not, the point you want to make is that there are these conventions or topoi of witnessing, and you explore just this range of them, and it's really awesome, and it becomes like a really valuable toolkit for reading text. But there's this range of topoi that we recognize as witnessing, and that really the truth of the matter is about how well one taps into those topoi in the historical constraints of their act of witnessing. So I, I'm paraphrasing here, but do you want to say more about that issue of topoi? Because I think that's very central to the argument of the book. Sure. Um and that's a it's a classical term that I use, but it, it intuitive is right. You use that word, I think, really aptly, because just as an illustration, when I teach undergraduate classes in uh, public memory, I do different little exercises around this. And one of them is I sort of say, OK, quick brainstorm, just write down by yourself uh, a list of, you know, if there were top 10 episodes in uh, U.S. history over the past 100 years and you wanted to make sure students knew them, what would they be? And there's like across a class of 25 to 30 students, um, just about every time there's at least, I would say something like a 70% overlap among all their lists that they're mostly talking about if they're, you know, what are the top 10 historical events we need to remember as a public? Most of them are common uh, among a group of diverse students who haven't worked this out before. So I think in in many ways, when people in this day and age engage in practices of historical remembrance, uh, a lot of times people might not notice it, but we've, um, you know, embodied a kind of playbook that's common. And when people talk in similar ways, we can hear that playbook coming out. So they always talk about, you know, Pearl Harbor, September 11th, um, Vietnam War comes up a lot. So. The upshot then is that there are these topoi or common topics um, to translate the Greek reference. And you can tell a lot about a community by listening to how they talk about the past. If they talk about it in certain patterned ways, it's probably a good bet that they share in common certain common places of speech, of reasoning, of thinking about the past. Uh, and there's a lot of potential implications there for social and political influence. A lot of the ways in which social and political uh, speech works is by pulling from people's already ingrained values and so forth. So yeah, that notion of topoi, the hunch of the book is that um, witnessing has become sort of commonplace in late 20th, 
early 21st century Western culture because people have gotten used to talking about the past in a particular way for particular reasons. And maybe not consciously all the time, but we've worked out certain moves we like to make. There's a kind of common verbal playbook or idiomatic playbook we seem to be pulling from. So that's what was really interesting to me, that even if somebody wasn't a, a literal direct witness to events, this kind of language of witnessing has kind of taken on an all-purpose um, appeal for a lot of people when they talk about any historical event. Yeah. And gosh, and this makes you want to get into all of the the text that you use in the book, and we're not going to have obviously time to do all of them. So let me let me put these in an order. I'm just thinking from an audience perspective. So let me start with the 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 piece that you wrote about the 9/11 memorial. Then let's move to that really interesting case of the like made up witness, um, and then let's talk about Booker. So I'm actually going to go kind of in the opposite direction and finish with Booker T. Washington, because the first challenge I think everyone's going to have with with reading this book, who's not kind of already enmeshed or habituated, as you like to say, in this sort of a, a way of thinking, is that there's going to be part of you that's just going to want to hold on to, no, but that's real. Like, no, but that's really, that's a real witness. That's real victimage. That's real pain. And I think for a lot of us, in the context of the listeners, this is going to be 9-11 and the 9-11 memorial. Because to say that our feelings about witnessing and about victimhood are constructed through rhetorical topoi in the monument of 9-11, especially for anyone who's been there because it's beautifully done, it's going to be very challenging. So this, again, I just want to reinforce that what not, what's happening here is not trying to say that witnessing, in, in this case, in the 9-11 memorial is is fake, right? Or, or posturing or whatever. Just that it has to take place in a certain series of conventions. And in turn, those conventions also drive what we recognize as witnessing. And so you make this argument about water in the memorial. So I'm looking like page 149 of the chapter on habituation. And you essentially talk about how water is so integral to practices of witnessing and it's become so commonplace. And the point you make is that these tropes that we think of like greenery, like water, like the use of acoustics as a way of memorializing loss are featured in almost every one of the finalists for the design for the 9-11 memorial. And I really like that because... It shows that even though we have these deep feelings and experiences when we encounter these topoi, they are very, very common. And so we cannot treat them as these rare moments of like transparent transmission of truth, because if that's what they were, you wouldn't have every single finalist showing up with the same kinds of designs. Mm -hmm. No, I appreciate that framework. And that's absolutely the case for that chapter. Uh, on the September 11th memorial, and then I'm trying to get beyond a space where it's one or the other, where it's sort of start good or bad. Um, the question I'm kind of asking is, I think, relatively novel in the context of all that's been written about that memorial, and it's quite a lot. And so there was just kind of a practical writerly challenge there to say, what's the new and different question I might be able to ask and answer? And so that, yeah, that question is then, there's this uncanniness to that memorial that I'm trying to use to prove a larger point, which is that uh, if you look at, you've referred to the um, final designs, and there was uh, hundreds and hundreds of designs submitted in the open public competition. And if you look at the different designs online from the initial submissions on down to those, that handful of finalists, it's almost like there's this zoom in effect that the closer you get to the final result, the more similarities or commonplaces are shared 
in the design elements. Um, they all have water. They all have references to these ethereal elements, um, sky and earth and greenery and so forth. And they often have reference to very minimalist, um, you know, granite designs and so forth. So uh, the upshot there is, is not to say that it's not moving and it needs to be there for um, families and people uh, who are direct victims of those attacks and so forth. There's an absolutely sacrosanct function in all of that. But we can also still think critically and notice and kind of take a step back and say, huh, why is it that there's this strong set of instincts to go to these design elements, which are designed to affect us in very particular ways? It's not just a blank slate. Uh, That design process, part of my argument in that chapter is that it's almost as if the fully realized memorial is kind of in outline, destined to be as it is from the beginning. There are so many similarities with so many other kind of popular memorials. And coming back to this original thinking about locating forms of witnessing in space and time, that it, it wasn't always the case that people would go to memorials like this for the purposes that are encouraged by like you referenced the water and these minimalist design elements or avant-garde styles. Um, we've kind of gotten used to or accustomed to memorials to tragedy and atrocity like this being commonplace in turn of the uh, turn of the century Western culture. Um, and indeed, you can track this statistically. There's, there's tons of these things all of a sudden that get built starting in the late 20th century. Whereas if you look at public art for this purpose from a century or two ago, a lot of it is um, public art designed to memorialize great heroes and generals and battles and things like that, often with a sense of triumphalism or monumentalism. And so um, it's almost as if the September 11th memorial is sort of um, the strong inflection point or culmination of a larger set of design commonplaces that for me, helped to prove the point that when people go to a public memorial now, it's to kind of witness in this somber aspect. Um, whereas before, it, it might not have been that kind of embodied experience for people or that sensory experience. I mean, the, for me, and again, I've done some research on the some of the stuff with witnessing in September 11, but... You have. It's fantastic. But the, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but, but I just thought this chapter was such a great point because like if you can get this chapter i think you get the book because mm-hmm. this for me i was thinking like the av- like the, the the average like reader who's not a rhetorician and not a public memory scholar reading this that's going to be the crutch is like can you give over the 911 memorial to a a really contingent sense of rhetorical witnessing because if you can i think you can grasp the gravity of what you're talking about and how our conventions of witnessing and our willingness to treat those as conventions, not just the truth, are really going to shape what we're able to do as a public. Yeah, and that that makes me think to emphasize the point that this chapter in particular is, um, I think, a good illustration of something I'm trying to do in just about every one of these chapters, which is to, I mean, certainly honor that um, taking the act or form of witnessing as a mode of communication And as a relationship to the past, I want to honor the fact of how people feel about that and how it affects them deeply in different ways, but also to sort of look at it from an angle a little bit askew. 
So in the case mm-hmm. of the September, September 11th memorial, to point out that the memorial in one sense for um, people, and I would say this as a, just a citizen as well as an academic, it's, it's obviously we need to have that uh, for their therapeutic healing and so forth and the healing of the community going on into the future. But at the same time, um, in a little bit different but equally meaningful sense, that memorial was actually a website for years before it was a physical memorial. And now, as I try to make the point, you can, in a sense, experience the September 11th memorial in a completely virtual space with all the photography that's done there. And there's apps that you can download that will take you on a virtual tour of it and so forth. So I also don't want to make light of that. I think for some people, um, that's an equally important form of witnessing, if you will. You just never have to be at the actual authentic location to do it, which is how people normally think about the act of witnessing is that it's in physical embodied sites. It's a pilgrimage to a place where literally something happened. So this notion of commonplaces is really elastic. There are commonplaces online virtually where people are brought together to memorialize that site and that event, but they're kind of not in a common place. So hence the paradox. Yeah. Um, and I noticed you kind of did a little bit of a, and I was actually curious about this, whether this was sort of a rhetorical move or a necess- necessitated by the publication. It's probably both, but you took your own photos for this chapter. I did. Um, I did. I wanted to get very particular types of angles. And um, that was, I, I totally confess, that was a little easier in terms of the permissions route. Uh, with regard to publishing. But yeah, that that was an interesting kind of um, witnessing a memorial experience itself because um, I made a few trips there and there was one trip in particular where I was there on especially a good day for photographic exposure morning, um, noon and night. We sort of did a few visits. And so I could observe patterns and things like that and get the angles I wanted. But um that's where I observed that most of the activity that goes on uh, on any given basis, a hell, whole hell of a lot of it seems to be photography. The people aren't actually even necessarily present in your unmediated sense. Um, they're mediating the experience kind of before, during, and after the fact through photographic technology. So. Yeah. And of course, I mean, my, my argument, and I'm, I'm sure you do this with your students all the time, is that we think of the photography as the media, like that's where it's mediated. But in fact, your argument would be through all of these topoi that witnessing has already been mediated, <laughs> just not through digital tech, right? So it's like, cool, it's like a, it's a double mediation, but one isn't necessarily more or less closer to the origin than the other. Right. It's it's not um, sort of an argument for preference, but observation of how this thing works and what are the implications of that. And and so, yeah, that when you go to that, a lot of the, the gestures, the sort of manner of photography, I think, but also people will. It's very tactile monument. They'll touch it. And they'll leave things there. And the behavioral cues um, just scream to me that if you observe what happens with the Vietnam Veterans Wall in Washington, D.C., for example, that, that as a culture, we've sort of learned certain cues. This is how you do this pilgrimage. You go expecting to physically interact with it and leave teddy bears and roses or whatever. And again, that, that wasn't always the case. We've learned this sociologically. Yeah, I don't. Have you been to the 
9-11 memorial, uh, the, the 9-11 exhibit at the museum in D.C.? Not in the museum, no. I've heard about it. So they have, it's very interesting. They have a whole, I, I went there to do a, a piece when they did the 50th anniversary of the JFK assassination mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that, I, that I still haven't published, even though he's five years ago. Um, <laughs> but uh, they have a whole collection of artifacts dug from the wreckage of 9-11, and most of them are cell phones. Really? Yeah. And I always wanted – I know I know there's something interesting about that. I've just never spent the time. I mean, it, it was like the networked mm. net, network catastrophe, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of like what they called it, right? Between the Al-Qaeda network and the people – the first time ever people calling on their cell phones yeah. to of their impending doom that's kind of right, thing. Yeah. So I, I figure that's all got to tap into how we memorialize and understand that. Mm-hmm when we visit the memorial, right? Yeah, I'd be very interested to see that. And there again, that's sort of, I think a museum commonplace now is the curators will ask, what's, what sort of mundane set of objects uh, in their sort of anonymity and ordinariness becomes a powerful metonym for the experience writ large? It was um, shoes and hair in the case of a lot of Holocaust museums. And, and cell phones is a really interesting one for for this one. So it's sort of the same, but very different in a way. Oh man. Well, there's our next, there's our next essay. We just line them up. Yeah, actually. Yeah. That's not bad. (laughs) All right. uh, So, so this is, this was a great conversation. And I think, I think a good follow-up to this is actually the flip side of that, which is then in another chapter, you actually address a totally different mode of witnessing, which is uh, Benjamin Wilkomirsky's fragments Mm -hmm. and sort of how that's, has the opposite, which is sort of you're taking something that was found to be very inauthentic and sort of arguing how, well, yeah, but but the authenticity is in the deployment of the tropes, not necessarily in the true or falseness of the empirical validation of the statement. Right. And yeah. And that's a lot to unpack. And also, obviously, background on that. So do you want to kind of just take that chapter and run with it for the audience for a bit? Sure. In terms of summary of the subject matter, um, people may have heard of it. Vilkomirsky's Fragments was published in the late 1990s as an authentic Holocaust memoir by a child survivor of the Holocaust. Mokomir Sriti was living in Austria and was a kind of relatively famous clarinetist or whatever, and he shows up in some Holocaust documentaries and so forth after this is published. He wins a ton of international awards, and uh, the likes of Elie Wiesel himself says this is a, a powerful authentic act of witnessing, except it was completely fraudulent, uh, as comes out, you know, a year or two later, bit by bit. So um, there's a lot that's been written on this already. So kind of same thing to the September 11th memorial chapter is, what's the kind of original question I can ask here? And just like in that chapter as well, I'm taking uh, fragments here as my rhetorical artifact, which can be a nice, convenient representation of a lot of other artifacts. It's sort of like a a consummate form of something wider that seems to be going on. And what I mean by that is there is a surprising amount of uh, fraudulent uh, atrocity literature that's originally published uh, as seemingly authentic, but then is later exposed as not being the case. This happens a lot in Holocaust memorials. 
uh, excuse me, Holocaust memoirs, but also in just atrocity memoirs as well. There's a couple famous ones dealing with, uh, I think, the Native American genocide and things like that. But even more generally, it's interesting to think about how that, a recognition of how often that fraudulent uh, memoir happens, it's not totally disconnected from a related phenomenon, which is that people in literature um, write kind of a lot of historical fiction about the Holocaust. And there's a lot of, if you will, made up pseudo documentary style movies or stories about that event. So um, the question I was sort of asking is uh, not which a lot of people have asked kind of, you know, um, how did he get away with this? What is the actual kind of story, the detective story, if you will, about how he was able to pass this off? My question is kind of what does it mean more generally that this was so readily accepted as an authentic Holocaust memoir? And it's, it's difficult to overstate how much that word came up positively, authentic, in a lot of the critics and um, uh, authorities' responses who should have known much better. Um, the answer that I provide is that he's using a set of commonplaces that have been generated out of traditions of atrocity witnessing from the late 20th century in Western culture forward. It's almost as if it, it's a two-sided coin, and it's a really bizarre two-sided coin. The memoir, on the one hand, why I think it was so successful in this regard, is it has almost every trope you could imagine from Holocaust literature that's supposed to signify this is an authentic, unmediated testimony about the experience of this event that's supposed to be beyond language. So it has all these emphases of things done to the bodies of concentration camp victims. It has motifs with soldiers and so forth and children that show up in all kinds of literature because, um, you know, there's some kernel of historical truth behind them. Things like this happen. But at the same time, it's the bizarre part. If you flip that coin is that because he's got every trope crammed in there, it overwhelms the senses and a lot of people didn't notice, well, it's not possible for all this to have happened. Um, it's, it's almost as if it's so overloaded that it emotionally overwhelmed people, shut down critical thinking, and they didn't notice, notice that actually this is not kind of random. It's very artfully arranged so that almost on every page he's kind of saying, this has to be authentic because I'm using this idiom from this other context or I'm presenting this narrative in a way that is presented in this previous book and so forth. Um, so my kind of interest in was then how, how do people think about authenticity and is authenticity such a great basis for judging the way in which we're bearing witness to the past when it can be so easily um, distorted and appropriated for untruthful purposes? It really drives the point home because you're reading this and you're thinking, yeah, if I had read this, I would – there's no way I would – but you also make the point in there that there are people now, experts, who are saying retroactively, well, we we should have – we could have known this or we sh somebody should have figured this out. So it also – it sort of shows that there's always slippage, right, That um, that even though we can tap into the tropes in order to – promote the ethos of witnessing, it is not necessarily sufficient to only do that. So there is almost this inescapable 
piece that that witnessing contains that can't ever be reduced to just the tropes you use. So, I mean, it's really fascinating how you work that out in this chapter. Oh, thanks. Yeah, this was is probably the most difficult single thing I've ever written because it's such a thorny text to work with. And I think I think one does have to be very careful about making critical claims precisely because there's so many stories attached to the reception and then the public controversy over this text. But as there's a little bit of a um, subplot in there, which is I didn't document it originally. It's been documented in many sources that um, there was a, a family in Israel, uh, people who included survivors of the Holocaust, who sort of accepted Benjamin Vilkomirsky, this person, as their kin, as as sort of, you know, the memoir was published. And this family said, oh, that must have been our, our long lost son or whatnot. So I think one has to take that seriously, not just say, well, because it was fraudulent, then we need to condemn it on all these levels. We don't need to kind of artificially praise it, but to say witnessing is a really weird speech act in some sense, especially when it's based on this ideal of authenticity, because um, a lot of times one thinks the speech act of witnessing is authentic because it it feels that way. It's a sensory thing. a lot of times when one testifies to these events, you're doing it in the absence of all kinds of historical records. You're doing it as a result of tragedy or atrocity, which destroyed all other empirical bases for judgment. So the speech act itself becomes the basis of judging whether or not it's authentic. And when you're dealing with this type of subject matter and the appropriation of those powerful tropes, um, that's a very dicey proposition. So in, in a way, it, it's authentic for many people, even though it's not an authentic speech act in the sense of being empirically grounded. It's totally fraudulent. But for a lot of people who, even after it was exposed to work in child psychology or, um, you know, historians and so forth, they said, well, you know, he's still kind of finding a way to testify to certain indelible truths here that go beyond language. So it's kind of fascinating. It's it's a neither nor proposition. Um, it's an occasion to to step back and say, what do we mean by authenticity? What is the basis of that? And uh, what exactly are we learning about history through these forms of witnessing that can then be so easily appropriated by somebody who had no direct connection to the events? Made me think. Are are you familiar with the James Fry case from a couple of years? It's probably like a decade old at this point. I am. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And. And I remember thinking, this isn't something that, I mean, obviously the Holocaust gives it gives the um, Wilkomirsky case kind of like an extra gravitas, but I just thought it was so interesting. So so just context for the audience, James Fry was this author who wrote this like best-selling book about his life as like a drug addict and and he goes on, I mean, Oprah like endorsed it as the book of the month and she he goes on Oprah and, mm-hmm. and she just, the writing, and then it comes out that it was all made up. Right. Right. And he had to go on, on this like apologia tour about how sorry he was for lying and all this stuff. And like the one thing nobody ever talked about, though, was like, but isn't there a way in which you yes, you lied. But also, can we talk about the fact that nobody caught on to that? It's a really I think I think you're right to put um, the Fry book alongside this one, because when, you know, you do research and you look up. Uh, fraudulent memoirs and so forth. Again, there's sort of an interesting cultural sub-history to that, uh, particularly in the in the 
heavy information age we live in now, in a sense, it's probably really easy to get a fraud up and running. Um, but uh, yeah, so Fry a lot of times is in there in a list that's mostly uh, fraudulent memoirs of a lot of the Holocaust, but other sort of historical atrocities. And Fry's case is not in that subject matter, but it belongs in the list in the sense of the larger phenomenon of uh, this uh, this is a little bit more uh, crude phrasing than I would use in an academic sense, but why is it that the public keeps getting tricked like this, um, particularly around people sort of giving testimony to these seemingly extraordinary experiences? In a very broad sense, that's that's related to my question in the book is sort of we seem to have gotten used to people standing up or issuing messages and saying, I'm, I'm witnessing, I'm testifying to my unique experience and taking it at face value. But the public at large keeps getting fooled for some reason. Well, yeah. And it also kind of goes to your point that, and, and I think, I mean, I don't know much about the Wilco Mirsky case, except what I'd heard and what I read in the book, but there does seem to be some kind of sense in which it's unclear whether he in fact knew he was lying. Right. Like, I think he knew he was, but I, th- there was something like psychologically where he may have had maybe some slippage there and either he was just so empathetic or... He just had some kind of other transference happening with some other trauma. Transference is right, I think. People keep debating this, but I think, uh, and he, he took through the whole legal proceedings that followed, he continued to maintain it was accurate. Um, even, even yeah, but when you get to when you get to James Fry, you know, which is more to the point about like how mm-hmm. how more and more entitled we've be, we've come to feel as a culture about witnessing Fry. Fry doesn't even fake it. He's just like, nope, I needed to sell. A novel, I, you know, I'd, and I think he says at one point, I'd seen so many movies or TV shows about this, I figured I could basically just right. talk, write about it. And so even though he's not pretending to have ever gone through it, his his mediated exposure and saturation becomes the grounds on which he's allowed to sort of try his hand at it. And of course, by virtue of tapping into a lot of the toe point, it'd be kind of cool to see where the Fry book I can see I can see a graduate student right now grabbing this project, yeah. but to see where the Fry book lines or does not line up with sort of your your topoi, and I don't want to call it. It's not really a cat. You didn't really catalog it in that sense, but you you do kind of by the end just wind up with an inventory. Yeah. Um, but the fact that he could tap into it and could make it work sort of gave him a kind of entitlement to do so. And so I think that kind of speaks to your point that while Wirko Mis- while Wirko Mirsky and Fry are sort of doing the same thing, they're separated by a very important historical rupture about who has how we feel more entitled to witness now in a way we didn't used yeah. to. Yeah, that is interesting. I'd, I'd want to go and look at the fry in depth. But I mean, I think you're right. You know, in a broad sense, you say for the purposes of that chapter, the, the core preoccupation is, is um, to kind of notice questions of authorship and authority are not just etymologically related, but practically related in the sense of, you know, the person who tells the the good story, the one that generates a lot of public appeal and sympathy, that will garner that person a, lot, a tremendous amount of authority. And when um, it concerns such a crucial episode from the past, you know, there is something like a, a celebrity or public ethos wrapped up in that process. Um, so to judge things just that they're authentic because they seem that way is a way of not perhaps confronting head on the question of what gives this person, are we so sure that we should give this person the authority 
to speak as a representative for the past. And maybe, you know, Vilkomirsky, just on the basis of pure talent, should have a certain degree of authority. Um, I think that's a legitimate um, debate. Or maybe that's a that's a horribly offensive thing to the people who live through it. But just to operate that the way, just to notice that the way in which um, that authorship operates in terms of generating certain degrees of authority or perceptions of it over the past is a is the kind of salient key question here. Well, yeah. And and that's cool, too, because just the very fact that I might be upset if someone were su- to suggest to me that somebody gets to have witnessing credentials based on their ability to bear witness, not on their empirical claim to witness, right. raises the point that this kind of when we talk about public discourse and how what we're trying to, and I, I don't know, I hear this all the time now. What happened to sympathy? What happened to empathy? Why can't we empathize? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, but that's what, I mean, to me, that's exactly what this is. I mean, Wilco Mirsky in some ways is the greatest Holocaust empathizer ever. And yet when people get what they want, now they didn't want it. So it, it, it makes us rethink that cliche as well. Mm-hmm. And that there, this is a perennial thing in terms of collective memory, that there are degrees of to sort of finesse my key trope here, commonplaceness. In other words, um, you know, Holocaust memory has become broad communal memory in a sense. It's become Americanized. That's part of the background of why Bill Komirsky's memoir was such a publishing phenomenon so that the culture at large feels itself to have ownership of it. Whereas, and I, that's sort of ownership in quotation marks, not a literal sense. Whereas, you know, perhaps the best custodians of that memory are the lines of direct survivors or whatnot. But this is the difficult point in that a lot of times the authentic witness has to then engage in a kind of ongoing partnership with people who didn't literally live through the thing. They need to become witnesses to keep the story going, um, to keep disseminating word of it so that idea of kind of where does the commonality where how tightly or broadly should the circle get get drawn is another implication here coming out of that chapter on Vilkomirsky. Well, and I think that sort of leads into a really good wrap-up question to kind of take us to this first chapter that you write on Booker T. Washington, and that is that witnessing has now become a kind of of entitled of a privilege and we we don't reckon we think of witnessing as something that you're sort of qualified to do by history or experience, but in fact witnessing become something that we are only allowed to do by being able to take certain subject positions at certain times. And one of the things we don't think about a lot when we act about, when we when we look at who is witnessing, I think one of the questions, and you make this point in the book, is that we don't ask who doesn't get to witness and why. Mm-hmm. And that leads us into this to the Booker T. Washington chapter, which I think probably if I had to pick a, a favorite chapter of the book, I'd pick that one. So do you want to talk about the Booker T. Washington and the issue of how he sort of finesses the fact that he needs to bear witness but can't bear witness to sort of pre-reconstruction mm-hmm. slavery. Yeah, sure. And thank you. I'm I'm glad that chapter worked for you. I went back and forth on it, and I it's it's a little bit of a standout, but it's meant to create a contrast. I think, um, particularly in U.S. culture, between the late 19th century and late 20th century and traditions of witnessing. So. Um, Booker T. Washington, of course, um, famous historical figure, um, former slave himself uh, in Virginia as a child, and uh, he 
leads a movement for African-American education, particularly in technical skills in the late 19th century, but is also recognized as somewhat of a national figure um, in terms of race relations and civil rights. So uh, he's invited to the famous, uh, it's called the Atlanta Exposition in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, it's supposed to be a celebration of the so-called New South. The idea being that um, the Civil War and, you know, the traumas of Reconstruction, this is the symbolism of the ceremony, not the historical reality. All that's behind people in the South now, and particularly black and white communities can uh, rally around one another in a new sort of economic partnership and begin to move into the 20th century. The the background is, of course, the the South was um, just decimated industrially and economically, so it took such a long time to come back. So there's a lot of, um, there's a chance here where Booker T. Washington, if you think of that just type of figure, a historical survivor, might on an analogous occasion, late 20th century U.S. culture on the public stage have been welcomed to kind of testify authentically in an unmediated or unartful way to his experiences and say, what are the lessons of slavery and in an honest sense and um, what should the community as a whole learn and overcome? But in the late 19th century, that's not the circumstance at all. He's what we would today call a survivor. Um, but in a sense, um, he's called on to give a speech, in it, as he does, um, which actually sort of praises, if you will, um, nostalgic Civil War or pre-Civil War history, antebellum Southern culture. It, it adopts a kind of... Um, Confederate version of antebellum history in which uh, slaves, you know, tended their masters lovingly, their quote unquote benevolent masters, uh, right on from cradle to grave and were um, faithful stewards of their lives. So the the idea here is that he's um, sort of saying, yes, I welcome the New South in those terms, just as we've been partners in the past, we'll be partners in the present and future. And it's really amazing because as a historical survivor, the, the dictates of decorum don't provide any space in which he can testify authentically as the historical survivor of atrocity that he is. Whereas I think in the late 20th century, we've just gotten used to a figure like that being welcomed in public to give that story, at least for symbolic and ceremonial purposes and whatever work that that um, symbolism and ceremony might do. So the chapter as a whole then is is meant to create this contrast to say, um, despite the pretensions to sort of unartful testimony, just raw, strict reporting of historical experiences, and despite the kind of notion of of, um, uh, the sort of high speech act that witnessing is from an authentic historical survivor, that speaking position was was not always hollowed out for all kinds of subjects. You said it perfectly, that in any time and place, traditions of witnessing exclude certain people from speaking um, while putting the spotlight on others. So there, there are issues of social and political power wrapped up in that process, whereby um, some people are, are invited and welcome to speak. And others are might be invited to speak, but not not necessarily the truth as they might ordinarily speak it in their own communities. Uh, hence Booker T. Washington's speech. Yeah, and you know, I, I tend to think a lot with these book interviews about reorganization. And I, if you haven't read 
Sharon Kirsch's uh, Gertrude Stein and the Reinvention of Rhetoric. I'm hoping to have her on the podcast soon. But mm. ever mm. since I read that book, I just think so much about how the books are organized as kind of part of the argument. And I went back and forth about if I were going to – when I interview you, do we start chronologically where you started with Booker T. Washington? Because I do think it works, right? Because – you sort of immediately clear the ground about the fact that witnessing wasn't always something that people were able to do. And also that that how you're able to bear witness has everything to do with the choices that you make. Because, of course, one of the things Washington can't do is use a lot of these topoi. Right. And he has right. to instead use irony. That's right. Yeah. There's, it's a fascinating speech and people are uh, – it's a controversial one, too. He's, irony is exactly the thing. Um, he's got to speak, or I think he chooses to speak and testify, if you will, or bear witness um, in in one idiom, but that will be designed to deliver two different messages depending on um, white and black audience members. So uh, the larger point of this is to say that um, that uh, yeah, again, not all contexts are so accommodating and welcoming for these acts of witnessing as we've gotten used to, but that also it's, it's not an either or question. The key topoi for that chapter is um, invention in the rhetorical sense, meaning um, coming up with arguments and lines of reasoning and forms of speech based on what's worked before or all the available choices one could make in a situation. And uh, there's a kind of mythology, I think, that surrounds a lot of literature on witnessing, which is that this is just uh, somebody as a historical survivor who's just giving the straight report of what they've experienced. There's also a recognition in other places of that same literature that acts of witnessing are so powerful as we've gotten used to receiving them from, you know, people like uh, Vaclav Havel or Nelson Mandela or Wiesel or or whoever you want to say, because they're very artfully arranged um they're rhetorically invented if you will constructed in a way that's designed to have maximum impact and so even the seemingly unartful memoirs of people like benjamin vilkomirsky the fact is they're they're artfully arranged and invented to have that maximum impact so um so the chapter in Washington is meant to say it's it's not peculiar to him. Even in the here and now, there are choices being made about what's the sort of most effective or quote unquote appropriate speech of witnessing. What styles or genres uh, are the ones that are most canonized, and what other voices are, if not you know outright excluded, not heard as clearly or accommodated as uh, enthusiastically. And I guess um, that actually brings us perfectly to the last question, which is you write in the conclusion, and I think this meets up with how you opened, which I always love, nice psychological closure, uh, with the democratic deliberation and what it means. So if, you know, let's say I buy the whole deal, right, the whole witnessing thing works for me, what, what, what are the implications of that for public culture and how we think about norms of public belonging? Yeah, well, it's sort of two closely related points. One is, I'm not sure I kind of come right out with this in the book. This is more just sort of the hunch I have as an author. Um, There are many reasons why monuments and memorials or discourses about witnessing really skyrocket uh, quantitatively in the late 20th century and early 21st century. Um, it, It becomes just part of the culture in many ways, particularly public or political culture. 
So one sort of hunch, I didn't exactly say this in the book, but I would sort of think that um, that's not a mistake. There's a there's a quotation by W.E.B. Du Bois. I forget exactly where it comes from, and I'm going to have to paraphrase. Um, he says a couple things like this across his oeuvre, but um, Du Bois at one point said, you know, to make um, democratic participation and equality and civil rights work, you've got to give people who have been excluded a sense that they have a role to play in building and maintaining the proverbial house of the community. And um, that he was saying that specifically about racial relations and conditions of equality. But in an analogous way, I think the language of witnessing today in an era of oftentimes unresponsive government, uh, plagued by gridlock and so forth, or where there's this barrier of special interests and whatnot, um, uh, and communication specialists between political decision makers and the public at large. I think in that kind of circumstance, the language of witnessing gives people a sense that they're involved in building and maintaining the house, that they're part of some sort of historical mission or destiny. Part of that might be nostalgia, part of that might be mythology, but so, um, but that's also not to dismiss it. It's to say, you know, that there's an idiom here that people are adopting because it's it's highly, in some sense, it's sentimental, emotionally gripping, and again, it gives people a sense of being in touch with important historical events and and learning important lessons from them. Um, so that's sort of one hunch I had, but that underlies that was my basis for what I ultimately wrote, and which is to say that. You know, coming back to that example of my little classroom exercise where I ask people to say, what are the sort of lessons of the 20th century we should carry forward as students and teachers and so forth? Um, that overlap in my students' answers, which seems to happen, I don't think is, is any accident. Part of what it means to be involved in, um, you know, transatlantic liberal democratic culture is to, I mean, just look at present day debates over, let's say, the past, present, and future of NATO. Um, the current presidential administration is, you know, giving signs that it doesn't like NATO. And I think there's a kind of commemorative or memorial aspect to meetings that international leaders tend to have about NATO. It's like we've all stood together in the wake of World War II and we've promoted these values and so forth. So part of international democracy community using that as an example in the here and now seems to be about remembering and intoning certain lessons from the past and kind of bearing witness together. So the, the ultimate endpoint of the book is to say that um, part of the commonplaces of what it means to live in a democratic community now are not just, you know, what is the Bill of Rights, what is the Constitution, um, those sort of political ones, but also the larger social and moral commonplaces that we get from collectively bearing witness to important historical events. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's just as a teacher, it's just like, okay, if now that we've recognized all these topoi, can you go find them a bunch of places? Okay. Does that make you less likely to just say, okay, I, I will pay deference because you you did everything right. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and I might actually think about like, okay, if I want to, if I want to buy in now that I kind of know the witnessing is rhetorical, what 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 am I trying to be made to think, and is that something that I want to think? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of this becomes highly ritualized, and some rituals are they're right on, and they should be preserved intact as they are. But I also think it's important to be critical and thoughtful about them. I think there's again a lot of mythology that tends to surround just the notion of of witnessing as a speech act, and I, I quote somebody else saying this. Um, 
in the book, two or three different people note. Well, you know, as much as people say, never again, always remember, people seem to forget and things happen again in remarkably, tragically similar ways. So the act of witnessing is doing a lot of work, but it might not be, um, you know, preventing the recurrence of certain atrocities. Maybe it's a mode through which we process and understand them in a different way. So it's important to understand what it can do and what it can't do in different times and places. Well, yeah, and I think I could be misquoting here, but if I'm just reaching into the deep recesses of my memory, I think another colleague of ours, Kendall Phillips, I think he he quotes, um, he has a quote, uh, never forget means never remember differently. Right, right. Which I think is to that point as well. I don't, I don't know who you're quoting, but I, that for some reason that just jumped into my mind. Yeah, no, that's a good one too. Um, I'm not sure who I'm quoting at the moment either, but uh, sort of. That's fine. You know what? I'm just going to credit it all to you. Okay. So, <laughs> with that said, we are at the conclusion of the interview. This has been so fascinating, and I always like to uh, remind listeners of two things: one, that you can pick up commonplace witnessing both at the University of Oxford Press website and on Amazon. And also, uh, whether you are or not buying a personal copy of the book for yourself, please consider asking your library if you have access to one, whether it's a public library in your neighborhood or whether it's a, a college library, to consider purchasing the book for their archives. Because, you know, academics, uh, including, you know, podcast hosts, we don't make anything. I mean, we may make like 10 cents off of a really good printing of a book. And so it's really about getting the ideas out there. And I think as we've already heard, Dr. Vivian's ideas are so valuable. And so we want to try to keep those in circulation. And one of the ways that we do that is by asking libraries to hold copies um, so that people can read them and, and take them out for research. Do you want to add anything to that? I think it's libraries are so important in this day and age, never more than ever. So I just second what you said. Yeah. And then uh, I always like to ask our guests, do you have a recommendation for our next book to be reviewed on the New Books Network? Uh, sure. I, I think it's not quite out yet, but it's coming out a little later this year. Um, Dave Tell, uh, professor of communication and rhetoric at the University of Kansas, uh, or excuse me, Kansas University, uh, is uh, is publishing a book called uh, Remembering Emmett Till. And uh, the, the episode of Emmett Till is one of the most famous American stories launched the civil rights movement or helped to in the uh, late 20th century. But um, I think you'll find that uh, Dave Tell is uh, telling it in a, in a new and fascinating way with some new interesting perspectives and uh, larger implications for exactly the sorts of issues of public memory and witnessing that I'm also interested in. Terrific. Well, if anybody knows Dave Tell, let him know he's getting an email from me and that he'd better say yes. Well, thank you so much again, Dr. Vivian Brad. It's been awesome to have you. And once again, check out Commonplace Witnessing on Amazon or from Oxford University Press. Thank you. Thank you.